This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Comms in Fall of Delta Green. Arthurian Films. Mark Diaz Truman. And the sorcerer Hugh Draper. I think it's fair to say that our heads are full of ideas for games. Sorry, can't hear you over all these game ideas in my head. If you, cherished listener, are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games in your head. But unlike award-winning podcast hosting game designers like us, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue! The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It's got a ton of generic components like meeples, cubes, Dice, tokens, and discs. And it's got a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing, with topics like refining your design, playtesting, crowdfunding, and how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash thewhitebox. Or follow the link in the show notes. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. But Ken, here's the rub. I also can't even hear you over these game ideas. The thump of dice and the rattle of miniatures tell us that once more uh, we are gathered in the gaming hut where uh, we're going to go back in time a bit. So instead of the gatefold cover of Peter Frampton Comes Alive, I think we've got the uh, the Woodstock soundtrack album. Uh, in all of its full uh, gatefold glory, because this question from beloved patron backer JT sends us back to the 60s as follows. My fall of Delta Green players have long learned about the need to plan when you can't rely on mobile phones. But in a recent game, we hit an issue. The players needed to get photos of suspects back to a particular department for ID and analysis, and short of couriers, we had no idea if that was possible, and research didn't help us. So to the question, please, can you tell me more about communication, information exchange, and bugging technology available to fall of Delta Green agents? And, of course, the limitations uh, thereof. So, uh, Ken, players are going to be super used to the uh, current uh, ease of moving information around, and then, cruelly, cosmic horror descends upon them as you send them back to the 1960s, to the old-fashioned days of uh, maybe you had to mail stuff in. Yeah, the immediate question is when in the 1960s are your characters? Uh, because 1960s are the decade in which the fax machine becomes a thing. And the fax machine is slowly developing to the beloved fax machine that we now completely ignore and mock for being a desperately antiquated technology when it uh, turns out there is some benighted uh, aspect of the of the world that still uses them. But in the 1960s, they were beginning to create uh, the first fax machines. And uh, uh, the fax machine that, that you're familiar with really begins uh, in 1964 because that is the first commercial fax machine. Before that, you could only send radio faxes uh, basically via the military. So if you're 
agents are near a military base, it is barely possible if that military base is a big one that is used to satellite transmission. So we're talking like, um, uh, you know, Da Nang or uh, maybe one or two other places in Vietnam. We're talking uh, maybe a, a, a couple dozen places in the continental United States. They will be able to send a photograph using a satellite. And they can satellite transmit the facts over the radio. And uh, that obviously will draw huge amounts of attention to whatever photographs you're sending. So you have to be super clear uh, about wanting to do that. Uh, in 1964, like I say, Xerox introduces the office facts, which weighs a mere, uh, a, a mere uh, 70 pounds or so. Uh, then a smaller 46-pound fax machine comes in in 1966 and can be connected to any standard telephone line. And that's the moment at which you begin to say FBI headquarters in the city can send a fax back to Washington with a picture on it. Because faxes, from the very beginning, the telephone faxes worked on areas of light and dark. They basically took a photocopy of your document and then they sent the photocopy through the phone line, and then it came out the other side. So anything that would show up on a Xerox machine, like a photograph, you could get off a fax machine. And fax machines basically operate that way throughout the rest of the 1960s. In the 70s, you begin to get fax photocopiers that are the same thing. Xerox brings those out. And there are uh, other versions of the fax machines that come out in the 70s. But in the 1960s, you can send a telefax from a, a rich person's office uh, to a very advanced part of the government uh, uh, using your uh, your fax machine. Failing that, uh, to get a photograph from one place to another does, in fact, either require, as I say, an army base that is willing to uplink to the satellite, uh, or um, possibly if there's a DARPA station somewhere, DARPA has uh, deals with various universities. So, for example, Carnegie Mellon, uh, Berkeley, uh, one or two other research universities might be able to, to access a satellite uplink for these purposes. Um, but other than that, yep, you're, you're using a courier or you're driving it yourself because, of course, as we all know from Whisper in Darkness, what happens to couriers with vital mythos information? They disappear and are never heard from again. <laughs> Eminently interceptable. Right. Um, and how good a photo are you going to get uh, via fax if you're sending it in for uh, analysis? Is there going to be a uh, enough information there to analyze? Uh, not usually, because usually the photographs um, are dark. And if you, if people remember the iconic sequence in Die Hard 2, which is not actually an iconic sequence whatsoever, in which uh, Bruce Willis sends the uh, fingerprints of one of the dead guys off, and he gets back a fax of their of their army record, and it's sort of black and white blobs as their faces. That's what faxes look like in the 80s. So faxes in the 60s, the photographic uh, quality is not going to be great. It is very much going to be like a, a bad Xerox of your photograph. So a full face photograph taken in good light, you know, someone who spent a photography point maybe to make sure that that photograph was super clear, uh, they might be able to get Someone, if, if it's a recognizable face with uh, lots of good cheekbones and planes and lines in it, if it's just a, a doughy mug, uh, they may not be able to ever identify them because the, the photo records at the FBI or at the whatever crime center they're, they're accessing, uh, the passport office are not going to necessarily uh, be able to be searchable. And that's the other problem, of course, is before computers, when you send a photo back to headquarters for analysis, that means someone has to go to the file room and start looking through photographs. Because 
without computers, there's no way to speed up that process. And you may be able to say, we think he's Italian. We think maybe he came in on the, uh, on the, you know, SS, uh, Matewan. We think that he's uh, connected to this guy and maybe there will be a tag in his file, uh, depending on whose records you are. The CIA, of course, has got computerized records very early, but they're very dependent on what the tag is in the file. So if that guy has not been listed as part of the SS Matewan or known associate of, uh, Noriguchi, his face is not going, even if it's in the CIA records, it's not going to come up on that search. So I guess this uh, brings us to the, let's go with a broader question of how do you go about researching what technologies are available in the recent past? Because uh, like a lot of things in daily life, uh, you kind of lose track of when uh, certain things were developed and uh, often they're a little earlier than you think, as in the, the fax machine. So how do, uh, uh, in general, we... Uh, research this sort of um, difficult-to-pin-down fact? Well, there's two possible, or I guess three possibilities. One is just decide that in your game, uh, Delta Green has access to a, a network of fax uh, terminals. They're experimental and were developed for DARPA and have just been quietly uh, ignored by the rest of the government. And that's completely legitimate. That's a decision you made in-game. Another decision is go to Wikipedia. That's where I got my fax information when, in fact, it came up in my game like two or three sessions ago and my, my players were like, hold on, how do we get information? And we looked up and found out, oh, fax machines are ridiculous and uh, good luck with that. And the third option is watch shows set and made in that period. So if you watch, for example, the old television show Mission Impossible, you will see them doing basically whatever they possibly can do in a realistic or quasi-realistic, in some cases, 1960s technological universe. If you watch James Bond movies uh, from the 60s, you will see what they what they have available to them. When you watch any program involving uh, people doing the sort of things your agents are doing, you can sort of see the sort of abilities that they have. And, of course, the problem is the good writing is written to avoid ever calling attention to the fact, oh, we can't send that photograph back to headquarters. But uh, every now and again, you'll get uh, lucky and they'll, and they'll show some sort of information. But getting familiarity with that period via the media is the best way to do it. And uh, Wikipedia is pretty good on history of technology, as you might expect from a website maintained entirely by nerds. So uh, I, I think that between those two, I don't have a giant problem when I'm running making the decision. But certainly... Deciding whatever works for your game in the moment, whether that be, yes, Delta Green has a covert fax network, uh, because, again, the Army basically had a covert teletype network that it was using to monitor domestic dissent in America for the latter part of the 60s, um, and teletype to fax is not a big jump, or say, nope, you have to courier it back. Which of you is going to leave the investigation, or are you going to trust this Young, easily abducted-looking corporal to bring your <laughs> yes. uh, your vital documents back. Yeah, he's, he's not wearing a red shirt because that would be weird. But he does have a that'd red be out of uniform. And, yeah, he would be dressed down by his sergeant. Yeah. Um. So, uh, I guess that brings us to to the other uh, broader question, which is that now that we are all steeped in information technology, even you and I, who you know did not uh, originally grow up in this era of uh, omnipresent uh, instant communication. It can be tempting to structure uh, scenarios, sort of assuming that people can draw on this, and then you then oh, oh no, you have to go to the military base for their facts, and it's a big deal. But the 
question of how interesting it is to have the characters have to rely on getting stuff back to base. I think uh, it's fun once to kind of highlight the technological uh, limitations of, of the era, and then after that, it's sort of a pain. So as you are structuring mystery scenarios, I think you want to set it up so that uh, there is very little uh, having to get information long distance uh, as part of a Fall of Delta Green game, just as there should be very little of that in a, a Trail of Cthulhu game or anything earlier, because, uh, you know, the realistic version of that is, well, you send in the photo, and a month later, somebody mm-hmm. calls you, uh, mm-hmm. and that can't be, you know, that doesn't work. So uh, it's about setting up the information so that, you know, if there's something that can be analyzed in the photo with your photography skill, it's something that you do on site, or, right. you know, you're spending a point of photographer or, or network or, or whatever it is in whatever game in order to, uh, instead of having to, you know, identify the doughy looking figure, it's like, Oh no, I remember from the, uh, from the Schutzack case back in, uh, 58, I ran into this guy. And in fact, I, I laid a whooping on him. And so in procedural storytelling, expediency is of the eff- essence. And the whole point of gumshoe, of course, is to make it easy for people to get information. And so period, Gumshoe games, I think, inspire you or, or ought to inspire you to find ways to shortcut uh, that uh, information gaining so that you're never having to do anything uh, time-consuming. Because very often, players will enthusiastically seize on a complicated but boring logistical problem as something they're very happy to spend a lot of time trying to solve because... It gets their problem solving going, but also there's no stakes whatsoever involved. There's no risk. Yeah. And half an hour later, all you've done is figured out how you all got in contact with each other to meet up at a given place. And it's like, uh, I'm sure you could figure out a way to all get back together to a particular place. I'm sure you could figure out a way to get information to this person, but uh, let's skip to the part where you have because, you know, there's no... A Mission Impossible episode where it's, uh, you know, there's half an hour where they just figure out how they're going to meet up again. Right. Now, in um, in my game, uh, what we use is a, it's like a doctor's message service. The Delta Green does maintain that, that you call a number and you say, I'm leaving a message for Dr. So-and-so, whoever the doctor code name is for your, uh, for your case file for Operation Midway, you, you know, Dr. Uh, Thomas or whatever. And then... You can call into that number just like a doctor would call in in the days before pagers and answering machines to an answering service and get their memos and get their messages. So that's the way that our players have been maintaining communication. And even in some cases, they give out that number to to a possible source and say, call this number and ask for Dr. Thomas if you need to talk to me. And that's certainly breaking, you know, classification, but that's what they're out on the sharp end. And the best part is no one in headquarters can tell them boo because it would take too long to get that information. The other thing, of course, that you can do if you're trying to identify the moon-faced guy from the SS Mate one is you, you go out and use an interpersonal skill. You follow him to the bar and you talk to the bartender. You go uh, use cop talk on the, on the shore police and say, hey, that moon-faced guy, what's his deal? Or you go to the other guys on the mate one and use intimidation. You say, give us about the moon-faced guy or we'll throw you overboard. Use an interpersonal because that, of course, is what people do in cop dramas, both, both past and present. And it gets you out into the mix so that the uh, keeper or handler can drop more information in if they feel like uh, they need to. 
And it gives you a cool uh, character riff where it's like, how would you get information about a moon-faced guy who may or may not have come off the SS Mate 1? And everyone's going to have their own their own particular interpersonal spin on it, and that is going to create fun play as opposed to, well, we've picked a courier, and within a month, unless he's been eaten by Mego, we'll, we'll learn about what that picture had on it, I guess. Although if you don't know what to do next, you just find a courier who you don't like very much. Give him yeah. a suspicious looking package and then follow him to see which creature attacks him. And there, who there ambushes him. Right. And then you beat up them. Yes. Uh, well, uh, just as expediency is essential in procedural storytelling, it's essential in podcasting. So we're going to expediently conclude this segment and head on through this exciting commercial to whatever lies on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The whir of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and whatever that is under our feet as we make our way to the center aisle, tell us that we are entering the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut, beloved Patreon backer Jeff Cars asks, perhaps a philosophical question, aside from Excalibur, he asks, why has there never been a truly great movie take on King Arthur? Robin, do you have a theory, a broad theory, or is it just... You can't have good movies about everything, kid. I have two theories. Woo! I'm excited. Yes. One of the, the theories is that uh, Arthur is not a single coherent narrative. It's a whole cycle of myths. Um, right. So Robin Hood, uh, especially after its you know early cinematic treatment, sort of uh, forms a, uh, a kind of a corpus of scenes that you expect to see in any given Robin Hood movie, and then mm -hmm. the movies are either good or bad. Uh, right. as, as movies are, and most movies wind up being not so great because movies are hard to make. Um, but the question of, you know, what you actually fit into uh, an Arthur narrative has never been that clear. For one thing, the good Arthur movie is from the 70s or early 80s or whichever one it is. And 
1981. Uh, 81. And so therefore, you know, maybe if Michael Curtiz had also made a really great Arthur movie in 1940, there might have been a bunch of other things that would follow that pattern. Yeah, everyone would, would basically be ripping that off. Right. The way that, you know, the Dracula stage play became the basis of Dracula film ad- adaptations more than the, the novel did. That there's, uh, the, the template wasn't perhaps established soon enough. But also, they're just, so many different bits and pieces. You know, the sword in the stone is the most famous image from it, but that's Arthur as a kid. And then you got to fast forward all the way to Arthur as an adult. And the main part of the myth is about the, the end of a golden era of everything falling apart. And so you've got to advance the narrative from, if you want to have all the iconic things in it, all the way from his childhood to having his ungrateful bastard son coming after him. So that's a giant time span and lacks the sort of unity of time that, uh, say, uh, Robin Hood gives you, right? Right. And, and even, um, and even Excalibur is almost two and a half hours long. So, you know, it's, it, it packs all of that in that we, that we're talking about because it goes from conception to death on yes. King Arthur, but it's a long movie. And I don't think even the biggest fans of it, uh, which I have on and off counted myself among, uh, praise it for its, uh, narrative drive. <laughs> yes, that's, that's not what it's trying to do at all. It's, it's, right. uh, uh, it does as a good a job as I can imagine of encompassing all of these different elements from... Uh, I mean, maybe in this wonderful era of fantasy trilogies, uh, you could get a Arthurian trilogy, but it would have to be... I mean, it would, there would have to be a an unsay knowable to star who has decided they want to be in the Arthur trilogy to make it happen. Because there aren't any more unsay knowable to directors. And... Uh, there's barely any unsay knowable two studios anymore and Marvel and uh, Disney are busy. So um, there are people who like the Merlin TV series. And I think that if there was, I think we're more likely to see a prestige drama TV thing that goes on, you know, somebody's expensive streaming platform. Yeah. Because then the fact that there's a lot of different incidents and they're dragged out over time becomes more of an advantage yeah. than a disadvantage. And of course you can talk about individual Arthurian movies like the natural, which is a great movie. And is an King Arthur movie, but it's just set in the 1940s and is about baseball. Yeah, certainly there, you know, <laughs> The Matrix, that's a pretty good King Arthur movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you want to expand things to the, uh, uh, you know, the, the heroic savior figure, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of different, uh, metaphorical versions. Matrix is more Jesus than he is Arthur though. Well, yes. And, that, and then, okay. So everyone imagine we just had a 15 minute segment on, Mm-hmm. The, the Arthur as as Jesus with a sword, but those things you know those things definitely do cross over. And yeah, you're no, absolutely I, right. especially once you get down to the archetypal level that movies like The Matrix are deliberately yeah. drawing from. Because if you can make your own story, then why not take the fun part of Jesus and the fun part of Arthur and blend them into a cool guy who does kung fu? Right? Why not? Indeed. Yes. <laughs> uh, although maybe there's an argument that you know that aside from The Matrix, there's also uh, no good Sue Arthur in uh, movies because it's like Dune is also an Arthur story and has that same uh, set of issues with it. <laughs> the other thing, however, that's I think even more of a challenge with Arthur for North American audiences in particular, and this is something that the writers and stagers of the musical Camelot ran into big time, uh, which is that at its heart, the core story between the adult characters is uh, the main character is cuckolded. It's a story of, uh, you know, a, a, a man whose uh, best friend and wife uh, go off and have an affair together. Um, yeah. And to the point where the, the Anton Fuqua King Arthur drops that entirely 
so that you can have weird. <laughs> it's dumb- busy dropping a lot of other things about King Arthur. In yes. fairness, <laughs> uh, weird dumb things happening on the on the ice can happen instead of that. And on the commentary track, he said, "Yeah, I just uh, that just didn't seem right to me. If uh, any of my uh, friends did that to me, I just." Uh, that's just not a the story that a hero can happen to a hero, basically. So he just rejected that out of hand as unthinkable in a heroic narrative. But of course, that's the that's the whole point of it. Um, and you know, it is a, a story. I, mean, I guess uh, I'm glad that Antoine Fuqua got why it was so important. And then, of course, being Antoine Fuqua, completely lost the thread of why that would be the yes. movie story. Yes. The next question is, why am I still making Arthur story if I'm... Yeah, I was going to make Lord of the Rings, but that whole yeah. thing with a ring in it seemed really dumb, so I had them do stuff on the ice. So, North American audiences react very differently, apparently, to uh, a story about a uh, hero's wife being unfaithful to him, whereas in North America, that was seen as a great, terrible tragedy in Europe, it just seemed, oh, he's kind of a fool. These things happen. But the contradiction of, of having an epic, uh, heroic tale, uh, where that happens, I think is, uh, difficult to bridge whether you're making this story in Europe or in North America. That it's just, uh, and, and I guess that's the other thing is that the Arthur story is putatively heroic because it establishes a golden age, but then it's about everything falling apart. It's about how, uh, you know, golden mm-hmm. ages die. And, and they die because of human frailty. So that, uh, interestingly, it's, yeah, it, it's weird that that, well, I guess that that theme has no resonance now. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's what's going on, right? People are like, well, everything's perfect now. Why yes. would we make a movie about human frailty destroying stuff? Yes. That was awesome. Well, it has enormous resonance, but it's, uh, not what some moviegoers are looking for in their myths, I think is, is the answer to that. So, yeah, but, maybe. uh, you know, a, a prestige drama where you had that relationship play out over many years and had uh, tasteful streaming slash premium cable nudity, and uh, you could uh, have and the premium end cable bit. fighting. Yep, and then the you know the la- latter seasons can be all of the knights getting old and getting sucked into the Grail quest and all uh, uh, vanishing into dust, and then uh, at the end, Journey plays and it fades to black. <laughs> Why, why journey, Robin? What have, what have you got against Arthur? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the figure HBO already paid for right, it. Right. Okay. Time. So they just have it in the bank. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I would have picked another band, but then the references wouldn't track. Right. Oh, yeah. That's a shame. I mean, I, I guess the other thing we can say is that if you focus on bits of the Arthur story, you can make a pretty good movie. For example, um, the animated Sword in the Stone, uh, from Disney way back in the day is a pretty great little cartoon that just focuses on the youth and training of Arthur. And it fits itself pretty nicely. And that, I think there's been approximately 8 million teen movies with that basic theme, where there's a, a an attractive teen from probably the Disney Channel who discovers that they're King Arthur. And I think that happens a lot. Um, but, you, for example, there's been a number of better or worse uh, Tristan and Isolde movies. And it's really, I guess, about how... Uh, fascinating you find the individual's cast as Tristan and Isolde because the story is pretty much Tristan and Isolde. No one changes it. Um, and it's, you know, whether those work, I think is, is a lot of it is down to casting, but, but so bits of the Arthur story, I think can work just fine in theory. Again, as you say, movies are hard. And so it's very hard to say, you know, oh, we're going to make this movie. And, um, uh, and have it be good, even if you had a good idea. And then the other part of it is that maybe Tristan and Isolde aside, I don't know that there's a lot of name recognition for, you know, uh, Sir Gawain. 
So if you're saying we're going to make a Sir Gawain movie and people will say, what now? It's Sir Gawain the Rock Johnson. He's famous. Right. Exactly. Now, that would be how you would do it. Yeah. Is you could do that. And you have, again, bits of, of that happen every now and again. So the sort of uh, halfway good ones that people are thinking about are often sort of taken from uh, pieces of the of, of the cycle and uh, and become better or worse. I don't think that any of them, even the good ones, are up there, even with Excalibur. And I agree with you that a, a good uh, prestige cable series of the of the round table story of the Mort Arthur would be pretty great. But uh, I think that sort of assumes a lot of stuff not in evidence, such as the capacity for prestige television to reliably produce anything good. And it certainly no, they have no better track record than movies do at this point. Nope. Art is hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the other character who has name cachet is Merlin. So, uh, That's if, why there was uh, a whole someone, TV show called Merlin. There was a TV show called Merlin, which, uh, uh, I didn't watch, but my, uh, my wife didn't kind of enjoy it. Um, but that's how I would be tempted to go at it because people know the name Merlin and to maybe get some of the, uh, even stranger Merlin stories that are, that come from France, from, from Brittany and, it's a story about the uh, trajectory of Merlin, with or without the whole Benjamin Button thing of aging in reverse. And, you know, that there's a sequence where he goes and visits Arthur and gives him some good advice and gets him a guff and then he needs to do something. But, uh, you know, maybe it's the, the story of Merlin and, and Nimue or something would be the, the way to have a coherent narrative that all uh, fits in uh, one go. And speaking of things fitting in their allotted space... I think it's time for us to uh, plop in a commercial and uh, see just what happens after we do that. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Prevent this podcast from fatally losing contact with HQ by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Chris Sellers. Bill Durfee. Ethan Mr. E. Schoonover. Jake Moss. And Josh Borles. Welcome once more to Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And once more we are talking in the past. The distant past of the day before Gen Con. And Ken and Robin are talking with... Mark Diaz Truman, the impresario president, uh, chieftain of Magpie Games, designer of a number of excellent games for that system, and the facilitator, enabler of lots more excellent games, some of them for that system, others of them their own magical gem-like creations. Mark, thanks for coming on. 
Thank you, Ken. That was a fabulous introduction. I feel like I should invoke it. When <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it will be in recorded form, so you can right, just put yeah. it on your phone. And, yeah. It'll be a ringtone when Ken calls. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, wisdom on the phone. There it is. Uh, so Magpie is uh, interesting in that it is a very young, uh, what we used to call second-tier company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seemed like for a while there, there weren't going to be any more of those. Uh, right. Yet you made one. Uh, how did you do that? And why? <laughs> uh, I'll answer the second one first. Because I am a fool and a, a, a romantic fool. See, the reason I didn't ask that one is that is the answer everyone gets. Yeah. That's the standard answer. But, I, but now that I've done it, I shouldn't have, but I'm stuck. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Jim Crocker, who's a retailer who works on the East Coast and has just been a huge supporter of indie games and our games in particular, always call it the return of the mid-list. Mm-hmm. Like, the mid-list strikes back. And I think a big chunk of it is just Kickstarter. We have... We're not waiting around for some uncle to die and us to get a $20,000 check that we really shouldn't get. To because launch. we played Call of Cthulhu and right. a dead uncle and a check is not going it's a bad, to be a bad situation. The, yeah. at, at, the, at the worst case scenario, you'll, your uncle will die, leave you twenty grand. you will go through a sanity-shattering experience that leaves you with a lifelong set of phobias, twitches, and wounds, which is uh, basically what you're already doing. Yeah, yeah. I'm already there, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 So we can do that much more efficiently with Exactly. <laughs> with <Kickstarter. laughs> um, and uh, you've Began, did you began Magpie to do games using Powered by the Apocalypse primarily, or did you do other games no, initially? No, I mean, Magpie? actually what happened was Marissa and I um, started, wanted to do a creative project together. So her initial, Marissa Kelly's initial um, sort of revoir was art, like literal illustration. Right. And so we were like, let's do a graphic novel. And we spent about a week doing that, and we said, this is too fucking hard. Yeah. Let's do something easier. And we foolishly then said... Let's make role-playing games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thinking, how hard could this be? Yeah, right? there aren't any moving parts in those. Yeah. yeah. So we started off making 6 by 9 black-and-white indie games, which were, we actually began with a game called The Plays the Thing, which is a very um, sort of pass-the-conch, kind of everybody-gets-a-chance-to-talk kind of game. And then our last best hope, which is kind of in the fiasco model with playsets, and everybody's doing a one-shot kind of thing for, like, B-movie, uh, like The Core or Sunshine or right, the right, World's right. Going to end in your caress to stop it. And then in 2014, Andrew Medeiros and I started working on Urban Shadows. Yeah. And that was the first PBTA game we did. And that was the first moment for me as a designer where it wasn't hypothetical. Like people were playing this game and they were having fun and they were not people I knew. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And that's when we really found our, I think, like our au revoir, right? right? Of like PBTA and other systems that we could use to tell these specific stories. And is there something specifically about Powered by the Apocalypse that makes it useful for those specific stories? Or is it just that it's a great system and you know it really, really well, and so you are able to design those stories into it? I mean, I think PBTA is great at telling stories that are chaotic. Right. So there's a certain kind of game that works really well for it, where mm-hmm. the context is low. You're not like a member of a military organization. Right. Because then the game would struggle. You would have to follow orders. You would have to reckon with authority. Works way better if you're teenage superheroes who tell the man, F you, Dad, I'm mm-hmm. going to go do my own thing, right? right? Or Urban Shadows kind of monsters who live in a complex society, but one that doesn't have clear rules. Right. So I think we're interested in those kinds of stories, and PBTA has given us a lot of tools to tell those. We've also written a lot of fake products that right, are yeah. more pulpy, more you know, the other side of that coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think PBTA has stuck with us 
both because it's that kind of story. And then second, there are a lot of design challenges that we have really enjoyed working through. Mm-hmm. So everything from what Brendan, Brendan did with masks to have shifting stats that change as adults influence you to Cartel's stress system, which is like a little engine of sadness where you generate stress and then have to do terrible things to get rid of it. Those are things that have worked really well within PBTA and, and they've been fun challenges for us to take on. Right. And this is something else that makes you interesting as a newer mid-tier company is that you've uh, typically a company your size has a house system that right. they developed right. whereas uh, you are very contemporary in the sense that you are using two very popular open source systems that were developed elsewhere right. as the cornerstone of what it is that you're doing and uh, to what extent is that something that you uh, have strategized about and to what extent is it something that just seemed natural when you did it? Deep strategy around every move, deeply strategic. <laughs> ninth uh, level chess. Ninth level chess. You don't even know. No, I mean, the fate stuff, uh, is definitely coming out of the fate community's interest in particular products. You know, we did, uh, I, I did fate of the flying temple with evil hat and that was a lot of fun to work on a kid's game, especially one about nonviolence, right? Um, so some of it is just like we're doing a project and this system fits and there's an audience for it. But, I think for PBTA, we don't think of our games as being powered by the apocalypse as a system. If you ask me, like, what is PBTA as a system, I would say it's not a system. It's a type of role-playing. And so Call of Cthulhu is not a system. It's a way of thinking about role-playing, right? And for me, as an outsider that to that environment, sometimes I come in and I'm like, the fuck does any of this work? Like, I, what are you guys doing over here? This is totally nuts. And and I'm like, is this percentile or something else? And you're like, it doesn't matter. It's all about the perspective that the players bring, what the referee is bringing, how the materials are supposed to be used at the table. So cartel and masks, in our opinion, do not share a system. They share a perspective on role playing, right? And so what that means is we have even worse than not having a house system. We have 17 different systems that we've developed <laughs> that, right. that have no overlap. Um, so we were shocked to find that fans of Bluebeard's Bride don't usually play masks. That's really obvious. But for <laughs> us, it was shocking mm-hmm. because we didn't take into account that we don't have a system. We have seven systems. So uh, do you have a fan base or do you have seven fan bases? I think that we have a group. Or is that a question you're asking, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are a whole bunch of people who like PBTA games. And it's a new enough Environment, like you pointed out, it's, it's very contemporary, contemporary, like it's happening now. I think there's a good number of people who are interested in whatever we're publishing in PBTA. But I think in reality, people care about brands and our brands, those seven different brands have different pickup with different audiences. So what is Magpie's brand? I mean, I think what we try to focus on is making sure that everything that we do is the highest quality that we can make it. And that sounds really cheeky and dumb, but it means that like we will delay things for six months to make sure they work. And that our promise is that if you open up one of these games and bring it to your table, that it's going to kick butt. And that is a really, speaking of strategy, that is a strategy that I, sometimes I curse the heavens that we have employed, right? Right. So we just, we're releasing Zombie World at Gen Con, which is a card-based PBTA game. And this card-based game uh, has randomized character generation, and it uses only cards, no dice. It has everything you need to play the game in a box. This game took us five plus years to develop. And it went through this, this phase of like, let's do a zombie game to let's use some cards to let's put everything on cards to now let us go through the torturous process of manufacturing in China and getting those cards shipped here to the United States. 
every step of that, I've said, like, we could have done this differently. Yeah. We could have cut some corner. We could have found some way to just release this thing. But at the end, I'm really, really proud of this really unique, special thing that we've come out with. And so it sounds like, I mean, I've known a number of people in this space, and uh, some of them are actually uh, not just game designers, but they are uh, addicted to serial entrepreneurship. That what they like is the challenge of, like you say, breaking in a new audience. Yeah. And not just the five-year challenge of making a game and making it good and making it beautiful, but the challenge of, this is not a game that is, by definition, going to appeal to our other audience. I'm basically starting my own imprint in my own company again. Now, is that something that you have noticed, or is that a thing that now you're looking at your schedule like, oh my god, that is my thing? Or is this just an accident of the fact that so many of your games in this, you know, what you might call the first period of Magpie sure. have been very individual and produced in that way. And that now that you can get your breath, it's like, we're doing Urban Shadows second edition. We're doing yeah. the, the, uh, uh, rural shadows, the game rural shadows. being werecows or whatever it is, right? <laughs> yeah, the werehoosers. Uh, I think we definitely have pursued our passions and the company that we often feel the most like is actually Burning Wheel. Right. And we talk with Luke a lot about like, what does it mean to just do what you do? Fuck everything else. Mm-hmm. Do your thing and do it to the fullest extent of your ability. And the answer is sadness, <laughs> and then like maybe some success and right? psychosis. And psychosis. Don't don't miss. Don't sleep on the psychosis. Yeah. Well, I don't That's sleep. A big part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think we have always said, look, we're going to make games, and when you bring a game to the the designer collective, we kind of are like Sarah, Marissa, myself, and Brendan. When we bring a game to the table. The first question is, like, defend this game's usefulness, not as a product, but as a piece of art. Now, how much art is there in a game about zombies, right, is is not the question. It's not, like, defend it on the grounds that it is a moving, Oscar-worthy piece. Right. But, like, what is this doing for role-playing? Right. Is there anything here, or are we just kind of checking the boxes and pushing a product out the door? And I've worked at companies where that's the business model. You 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 want everybody to keep their jobs? we got to keep this product moving out the door. We're not that kind of company, right? We're the kind of company where every product we release is supposed to be pushing some boundary. Mm-hmm. So with Zombie World, one of the reasons we invested in it is because I was like, look, Zombies is a cool story. There's lots of cool stuff going on there, but it's it has been done. So what else are we doing? Hmm, really? And, and this idea of Zombies in a Box, a, a role-playing game you can pull out at a convention and be like, we don't have to print anything. Everything's already here. Here's your card. Let's play right now. Appealed to us as a place to right. like push a boundary, do mm-hmm. something different. Um, and yet, when we looked back, and I think you were there at the Gamma Trade Show where we started to do this reflection mm-hmm. and said, wait a second. <laughs> what is, what, breaking boundaries is not really a business strategy. No, it is not. <laughs> well, it is. It, you break a boundary and then you continue to uh, cater to people who are thrilled by the boundary that you broke. By yes, the initial yes, boundary breaking. By the initial boundary breaking. But if we then say, hey folks, this has been great. It's been real fun. We've got other walls to knock down. You all have a good time here. We're not actually building on anything. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've done some work to think about, okay, well, how can we reach new audiences with the PBTA system? So we're going to be doing the Root RPG, which is based on the Root board game, which was right. a big hit for this last year. Yeah, a um, lovely game of animal counterinsurgency. Yes, right. It's a coin game with an animal, mm-hmm. animal skin. Um, we're super excited about that game because... Yes, it breaks all kinds of boundaries for us in terms of its design, but then it also has this place where people who don't know us can find us through Roots and where we can challenge what a role-playing game is for those folks. It's right. not going to be D&D 5th Ed clone that has strength with, with, with cats and birds. With cats and birds, right. Um, we're going to do um, 
a new card-based game that Marissa's leading on called Airlock, which is a space horror game. So we're going to continue to try to innovate on this card-based model and right. do some interesting things with that. And then as you hinted at, we're announcing here at Gen Con that we're doing Urban Shadow 2nd Edition. And part of that is literally, like, there are things about that game that now... I'm like, oh my god, I would have done that totally differently. Right. But another part of it is we're moving to 8.5 by 11 book. We're going to have full color arts. We're going to look to kind of connect with audiences that are already connecting with stuff like Tales from the Loop or uh, The One Ring. Like, these are games that do actually break some of those boundaries. And right. we want to be in a space where we can reach people. You want to be able to be in, the, in that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's not because we don't love the indie conversation, but actually because over the last seven years that I've been doing this, it's changed. There used to be a six by nine market and an eight and a half by eleven market. And over the last seven years, I'm not sure where the boundary is anymore. Right. Right? When Tales from the Loop won Ennies, and I'm looking at it saying, This has Apocalypse World principles in it. Like yeah. literally taken from Apocalypse World. I don't know what's what's traditional anymore. Well, I mean the the, the the trad indie boundaries began to erode the instant that indie became a thing. Right, well sure. Right. And, but, and people were taking those those lessons out of, uh, in, of indie games and putting them into trad games. Fantasy Flight Games jump. is like, we're going to have weird dice and those yeah. dice. Like, yeah, obviously that stuff breaks down. Mm. I mean more in terms of like what retailers or distributors are talking about, what right. they're willing yeah. to see as a regular product. So, so it's, so it's begun in the design community, spread to play, and yeah. is now in the commercial sector of it. I think that's a great way of talking about it is that the designers from minute one, I think, were like, the Forge, cool ideas, whatever. And then players have started to internalize things like, if you say fail forward, how many players understand what you're talking about? It's like, 90%. Or scene framing. Right? Yeah, or scene framing, right? These are things that used to be esoteric or odd, and now are just considered to be part of every RPG ever. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing that there are these opportunities to reach more people in different ways. And so to do that, we've got to, as you said, maybe stop breaking every boundary every time and start thinking about how do we work with the community that we've actually built. How to consolidate what you've done so far and give people more of the thing that they You've Absolutely. already convinced them that they, they love. So to what extent uh, have you seen people recapitulating sort of the uh, original uh, direction of role-playing where people came in, in during the D&D boom and then mm-hmm. they radiated out to other games? Are people already radiating out from an awareness of D&D, which of course is hyper-accelerated because of streaming, yeah. and finding you already, or are you waiting to snaffle them up in the next couple of years? I, I don't think those people are there yet. I think that they're still very much in D&D mode. Um, they go to the bar and play D&D and drink beer, and that's this new and interesting thing they're doing. And I'm having conversations with the people with, I say, I mean, you guys know this, like, what do you do for a living? Oh, get ready. Like, <laughs> right? I do this real weird thing, and then more and more people are like, oh, I play D&D on the weekends with my friends. And I start talking about a Mexican drug fiction game, and they're like, that is really interesting. I have never ever considered that that could be possible. Mm-hmm. And I think we're a couple of years out from those people, at least the the ones that are going to stick around, right. really reaching out and finding these other things. But there's just so darn many of them that a bunch of them are going to do it. They have yeah. to and do you've it. Got right? this cool That's stuff just how math works. And, yeah. we're, and I'm also seeing, I mean, to the, to the Cthulhu stuff, like, there is just such a huge push for companies that are putting out regular good content for Cthulhu are opening doors because I'm seeing a lot more people or having that experience either be their first experience 
or their regular experience. And honestly, making the jump from Cthulhu to Master, Cartel, or Bluebeard's Bride is a lot shorter jump than the sort of basic fantasy wish fulfillment of a D&D 5th Ed adventuring party. Right. So I think vectors that people are coming into are way different. I think people's expectations for online games are way different. I think that PDF sales and how PDFs work and people collect them and distribute them and, and play with them is way different. So I think that we're not seeing yet the full brunt of what this means, but we are seeing that when somebody does stream our stuff, we see it in the numbers. Like We have a sense that people come up to us and say, I heard about Urban Shadows on the Adventure Zone. I would like a copy. And we're like, great. Great. Have you played anything like this before? I have not. Okay. Great. So that all that stuff is coming. And I think we want to be in a place, like you said, where we're ready to cross that boundary with them. So we're not handing them a six by nine black and white book that doesn't contain any information about how to run it beyond the basics. I want to give them a book that makes sense to them that they're like, Oh yeah, this looks like my D and D books, but now I'm going to do all this other stuff. The, the, like the person who, who uh, got into D and D via streaming and started playing with their friends in college. And now they're like, there are other games you can play other games with this stuff. Yeah. And then they, uh, they either see a stream or they, you know, go around online and someone tells them about uh, Urban Shadows or, or Mass or Cartel, and then what's the moment where you want to take them from a nascent, games are fun, uh, my fifth level ranger, and turn them into a psychotic uh, magpie stand? <laughs> is, well, is there, is there, a, is there a, a moment, of, a, a formula for that? It's like, just play just play Bluebeard, just play Velvet Club, like that'll fix it? Or is there, um, uh, is there a process, or is it just by guessing by God and hope that enough people's serotonin uptakes are screwed up? I feel like the difference between being an indie gamer and a more traditional gamer is around the sense of, do you have a regular game? Like, I don't think it's really possible. Like, I would love to say, like, Cartel is the only game you need to play for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Actually, that, that makes me kind of sad if that's all you would play. It's, yeah. it's kind of a sad game. I call it Cthulhu. After right, all. yeah, right, exactly. Like, I actually think Call of Cthulhu at D&D have, like, this perspective of, like, yeah, I, I show up with my friends and we solve the Keeper's puzzle. That, you know, Or playing an OSR game. Yeah. I, my friends and I go adventure in this world. Sometimes we die, and we make new characters, and we all go on. Mm-hmm. But if you're playing Bluebeard's Bride, like, for the 17th night in a row, my fellow brides and I will experience the mansion doesn't make any sense, no. right? Yeah. Like, so it's a little bit like the difference between watching NCIS and watching The Wire. Like, you can watch NCIS forever, I guess. So then, far. And when, <laughs> when NCIS ends, they'll have something else that's basically NCIS. But when you finish watching The Wire, what do you watch next? There's no wire two, right? Yeah, right. You have to then at some point say, "Well, what's like this? Mm-hmm. What's in the ballpark of this?" And I think that's the moment that we want is when somebody plays masks and they're like, "Wow, I never really thought about how the mechanics of my stats could be an arena of conflict between myself and other actors in the space. What else is like this?" And that, that was a good movie. Yeah. Is there another movie by right. this director or from right. right? Yeah. You're not, yeah. You're not watching uh, the extruded Marvel film 23. Right. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. saying, well, this movie was an insane piece of Estonian fantasy fiction. Right. What else is like that? Well, you have that feeling of like watching Pulp Fiction and getting to the end and being like, is there another one of those? Right. And the world has to tell you, like, I got some bad news. Yeah. There isn't. Well, I just heard a note of finality. So on the note of finality, uh, Mark, I'd like to thank you very much for swinging by. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. There hangs the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, and she is glowering at us, as is her wont, but uh, we accept that from her, and we sweep on into the Edwardian parlor, where, in his smoking jacket, awaits the consulting occultist. And this time around, we're going to look at a tantalizing historical footnote uh, that also left behind uh, an exciting visual reference and check out the story of Hugh Draper. And when you are typing his name into Google in order to see the uh, sigil, the magical sigil that we're about to describe, you are typing in H-E-W uh, Draper, as, in, as if he was uh, going to uh, hew some wood. And uh, can this imprisoned sorcerer left behind uh, some carvings in the Tower of London? When I first read about this story, I imagined sort of some simple kind of scratchings on the wall. But when you look at what he actually left behind, it's it's pretty darn impressive. So Yeah, and given that he's carving it into limestone, I want to know what his jailers were doing. <laughs> his jailers were not player characters, uh, because they would have stopped that. If you look at the, if you look at the, it's, it's down near the floor. So uh, one place that I saw speculated that maybe he had a chair or something that he would move in front of his enormous astrological sphere uh, when he was carving it, and then you wouldn't be able to see it. But at some point, when you're trapped in a tower, you're, you're imprisoned in a tower, and you say, hey, is it possible I could get a hammer and chisel? <laughs> I would think that basic security would say, well, I'm going to have to run that up, but I'm not, I don't think your chances are good, uh, Mr. Draper. Yeah, let me check. Let me check. This is a prison where we're trying to prevent you from this. Oh, what the hell? <laughs> um, so let's, uh, let's back up a bit, uh, and give some context. Uh, so Hugh Draper, uh, was imprisoned uh, in the Tower of London between, uh, 1561 and 62. Uh, this was, uh, the reign of Elizabeth I. And, uh, what else of, uh, his mysterious tale, uh, were, were you able to unearth? Well, first of all, we know that he is an innkeeper from the city of Bristol. Uh, he was a wealthy person. He was a person of repute in the community. He was well known, but, he had the reputation in Bristol of being someone who would cast your horoscope and had lots of magic books. And in Bristol, I imagine that was pretty cool. And you could do the horoscope for a voyage and make a couple of, of nickels from, from merchants and whatnot. And it was all good fun until a area nobleman named Sir William St. Lowe 
has his wife, who will grow go on to become uh, immortal as Bess of Hardwick, but at this point is just Elizabeth St. Lowe. Uh, she is struck by poison in, 18, in 1560 and uh, barely recovers, uh, and suspicion falls on Sir William's brother, Edward, who I believe uh, saw that in her last two marriages... Bess of Hardwick carried away the fortune of her husband through legal chicanery. And so her husband's family, such as their brothers, Edward, were left with nothing. And he may have thought, I'm not going to take a risk that that's going to happen to me. So I'm going to poison Bess of Hardwick. But because he's noble and titled, they just arrest his accomplices. And one of his accomplices is, according to the report of a friend of William St. Lowe's named uh, John Mann, which, by the way, strikes me as the thing that you say to the Star Chamber when you realize you're testifying about sorcery. What's yes. your name, sir? The name's, um, the name's NPC. John Nick NPC. Man, that's my name. Or yeah, the GM was in a hurry. Uh, his name is John Man. What yeah. do you care? <laughs> but he uh, fingers um, uh, 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 Hugh as a known sorcerer, and Hugh is dragged before the court, and he says, "Oh no, I." I realized that was very wrong to do sorcery, so I've burned all my books, and I don't do sorcery anymore. There's some sort of mistake. Perhaps I can treat you all to a delicious turkey leg, or, I don't know, your horoscope. Damn it! And so, into the tower he gets chunked, and in the tower he carves, and in not that much time, because he's put in the tower on March 21st, and he dates his uh zodiacal sphere May 30th of 1561. So he's he doesn't spend that much time, all told, uh, carving away at it, which again, I guess if you're there giving you stone carving tools, why not? And uh, certainly seems to suggest that it was uh, okay for him to burn the books because he memorized everything. <laughs> he didn't need reference to draw this. Uh, he memorized everything. Yeah. I mean, I could not do that without a book. Uh, so uh, if you were getting uh, your horoscope done by Hugh Draper, that was money well spent, I think. He was the, he was the real deal. Uh, so he's, he's left this, uh, sigil beat. Now, the, the, we don't know really what happened to him at this point. He's, uh. No, no, uh, there is at one point a record in the tower that says he was very sick and they stopped mentioning him at all after 1562, as we've mentioned. But there's no evidence that he was ever released or tried or anything. He just sort of stops being in the records and, I guess the two theories are he just dies of his very sickness or he bribes someone and is let out. And of course it's not going to be in the record. And then he sort of keeps his nose clean and his head down when he goes back to Bristol. Or um I guess the favorite one is that like Keziah Mason, he carves himself a hyperspace gate and bamfs right out of there. And the heck with you jerks. You'll, you'll be glad to know by the way that Sir William St. Lowe uh, lives another three years and then dies. And uh, guess who gets all of his property? You're right, Bess of Hardwick. So take that, <laughs> so, Edward. So this uh, is one of those things where there's a cool little story, and now we can start to uh, build on top of that. Uh, the hyperspace gate, of course, is uh, uh, very appealing because that allows us to uh, use this sigil, which is still part of the Tower of London, uh, for uh, any subsequent era in which uh, you need the characters to have access to a hyperspace gate. They just have to now get past the tour guides, and that uh, should be a, a pretty simple thing to arrange, and uh, you can uh, deal through that. But uh, is there anything else about the era, the 1560s, that uh, suggests that this uh, sigil did more than just allow a Draper to uh, uh, slip out of this reality? Uh, are there? Uh, obviously, he uh, took care of his uh, uh, major tormentor, 
uh, got him out of the picture, uh, possibly mm-hmm. uh, uh, picked up some money from his uh, uh, sad widow. Uh, are there other events uh, in the 1560s that we want to uh, rope into our uh, imaginary magical history involving this? Well, I mean, the 1560s, you uh, you begin to see some of uh, John Dee getting his uh, big act together. He's in Europe uh, looking for magic books during uh, the 1550s and 60s. So he has got a, a possible uh, link into this business. And certainly um, he is... The guy who has, uh, I think if you show up at the Tower of London and all that's left of the prisoner who was there for attacking the captain of the Queen's Guard, which is what Sir William St. Lowe was, is a, uh, astrological, complex astrological carving and maybe a hyperspace gate. Uh, John Dee's the guy you call in to tell you about it. Um, and, uh, it is at that time that he is developing his theories of, um, the British Empire and his argument that America is Atlantis. He writes the Monus Hieroglyphica, which is uh, sort of a core piece of his uh, of his uh, magical working, and we still are not exactly sure what it was. He does that in 1564. So you could say he takes the Monus Hieroglyphica insight from Hugh Draper's hyperspace carving, and that maybe John D. sort of you know, gets a little um, uh, cement and, and puts and puts it over one of the lines so that everyone in the salt tower can't just hyperspace their way back out of it again. And that that can be one of the challenges that the player characters have is they're tossed in and they, oh, you know, so one of these lines has got cement in it. And if you carve it away, oh, hyperspace gate. Uh, right. Um, and there's a, a plague that comes a few years later, so you can... Uh... Yeah, there's always going to be a plague. <laughs> yeah, well, if if you have a sigil and a plague, you can you can connect them up, right? Right. But uh, as we said, whatever era you're in after the Elizabethan era, if you need uh, if you need your characters to find a uh, hyperspace gate in uh, in London, there's uh, there's one uh, waiting for them. All they have to do is uh, make a rubbing, and uh, and they're good to go. Right, and get uh, tossed in the salt tower, not any of the other towers in the Tower of London. Yes, you have to make sure you're in the right tower with the correct, you know, but that's. That's hyperspace gate number, you know, 101. Yeah, that's hyperspace, hyperspace, uh, 10 alpha. Yes. Um, well, speaking of, uh, getting into gates and transporting ourselves, it's time that we, uh, exited, uh, this dimension, uh, to the dimension, uh, where, uh, you're not listening to this podcast, but we'll be back through a gate a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Don't let this podcast be pecked to death by ravens. Throw in with such Patreon backers as... Yuri Horneman. Martin Runquist, Jesse Lowe. Dreaming Johnny. And Diane Donaldson. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest very on-brand design, Gaming Hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>